Okay, turn with me to Matthew 10. And uh, we are looking there in the first four verses as we go through uh, the, these various, uh, all the disciples and uh, the 12 disciples. And last week we looked at Philip and Bartholomew. And uh, uh, the question was asked about how do we know that this isn't the same Philip that's in Acts? Well, the Philip in Acts was a deacon. This Philip was a, became an apostle. This Philip went way far away <laughs> from where Philip the deacon went. So that's one reason. Uh, but uh, then we saw Bartholomew, Nathaniel, who, who, uh, or actually it's Nathaniel Bartholomew, Bartholomew was his last name, and uh, uh, how he was impressed with Jesus' omniscience and recognized him immediately to be God in flesh. Now we come to Thomas. And when I say Thomas, what's the first thing you think about him? Yeah, he was a doubter. He's known as Doubting Thomas. But let me just say, Thomas has gotten a lot of bad press. Uh, Thomas is a better man than you think. In fact, I'm convinced most people really don't understand Thomas. Uh, so I think in the next few minutes, you're going to learn some things about Thomas you didn't know. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us nothing about Thomas other than his name being mentioned in a list. Uh, but once again, John, who always seems to dig into the heart of people, opens up Thomas for us. In John 11, we see uh, three brief texts. Uh, but first, by way of background, in chapter 10, Jesus had just gotten into a discussion with the Jewish religious leaders. It was at the Feast of Dedication, which is known today as what? Feast of Dedication? Hanukkah. So it was wintertime, and uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had demanded that he tell them plainly if he was the Messiah. And instead of simply saying yes, Jesus told them that the works he did in his father's name proved who he was, and that their failure to believe in him was because they were not a part of his sheep. And that's, why he, that's when he made that great declaration, I and the Father are one. And they knew exactly what he meant because it tells us they picked up stones to stone him. They were planning to kill him for blasphemy. And there was more discussion between Jesus and them about what he meant and how they refused to believe his works. And again, he told them, the Father is in me and I in the Father. That's chapter 10, verse 38. So they tried to seize him, but somehow he eluded them and left Jerusalem and traveled beyond the Jordan River to a place of safety. Now we come to chapter 11, and Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and near death. And he, but instead, Jesus chooses to stay a couple more days beyond the Jordan, and then informs the disciples that he plans to refer, return to Judea. And the disciples tell him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going to go there again? And then he has a discussion with them about Lazarus being asleep and he's going to wake him up and the disciples misunderstand and think he's talking about actual sleep. 
and uh, they can't figure out why Jesus wants to go back to a place where the leaders are trying to kill him just to wake up a friend who's asleep. And so verses 14 and 15 tell us, so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. In other words, I'm going to go there and perform a miracle to increase your faith because you guys obviously need to see something that will make you believe. So let's go. Now, that's a scary announcement because all the disciples can think about is, oh my, this is, this is suicide. We can't go back to Jerusalem. They'll kill him. What in the world is he thinking? So you know they aren't very keen on this idea. And some of them were probably thinking, well, if Lazarus is already dead, there's no reason to go back. I mean, nothing can be done for him now. So why don't we head north back to Galilee? It's safer there. And then we come to verse 16 and we hear from Thomas for the first time. It says, therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus. Let me just pause here and explain his name to you. The name Thomas is his original Hebrew Aramaic name, which means twin. And the Greek equivalent to that is Didymus. Uh, so he was a twin. He must have had a twin brother or sister. And so in that culture where both Aramaic and Greek were commonly spoken, he would have gone by both names depending on the situation. Now, I would, under, listen carefully, I would never, ever recommend a fraudulent Gnostic gospel which has long since been proven to be fake. Uh, never recommend that to you for reading. But the Gospel of Thomas, which claims to have been written by him, contains these opening words. These are the hidden words that the living Jesus spoke, and Didymus Judas Thomas wrote them down. In the original Greek version, it says Judas, who is also called Thomas. Uh, so there are some theologians who think that his given Hebrew name was Judas, but because he was a twin, he went by the Aramaic nickname Thomas or its Greek equivalent Didymus. But since the holy inspired scriptures do not tell us that, all we can say with certainty is that he was Thomas, who is also called Didymus. So then, having chased that bunny to the furthest possible hole, let's get back to verse 16. It says, therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now that simple statement by Thomas tells us some interesting things about him. I see several things in that. First of all, I see a certain amount of initiative. Uh, he speaks up and says, well, guys, I guess we need to go with him, even though it means we're probably going to die with him. He's obviously pessimistic about the outcome of the trip, but his obvious pessimism makes his courage all the more admirable. Uh, he was convinced Jesus is going to be killed. And if they went also, they would all die. But you know, the greatest courage in the world is not the courage of an optimist. An optimist may have courage, but that's because he believes the best will happen. The greatest courage in the world is the courage of the pessimist because he knows the worst is going to happen, but he's willing to go anyway. Uh, and that was Thomas. 
He says, we're all going to die, but let's go. That's a lot of courage. Uh, he could only see disaster, but he was grimly determined to die with Christ. He was willing to pay the ultimate price for the sake of his Lord. Now let's think about this. If you only think of Thomas as a doubter, then this doesn't make any sense. I mean, why was he willing to go die with Jesus? Not because he doubted him, but because he so totally and utterly believed in him. Thomas was perhaps equaled only by John in his complete and unwavering devotion to Jesus. He had such a deep and intense love for Jesus that he couldn't endure existence without him. If Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem and what Thomas thought was certain death, then Thomas was going too because the alternative to the living without him was unthinkable to Thomas. Most of you, if any at all, have never heard of blind King John of Bohemia. His armies were at war with France in 1346, having united with France in a battle against the English. At the Battle of Crecy, the blind king decided that he wanted to join the battle. So he spoke to his men, and their loyalty was to him was so great that even though they understood what the outcome would be, they tied the reins of their horses together so they wouldn't lose the king in the battle. And then they all rode into the battle together. Because of the limitations on movement caused by their reins being tied together, they were all killed together in battle. But such was their love and loyalty to their king that they were willing to go with him regardless of the cost. And using blind King John as an example, theologian Herbert Locklear wrote these words in his book, All the Apostles of the Bible. <clears throat> Quote, Like those brave knights in attendance upon the blind King John of Bohemia who rode into the battle of Crecy with their bridles intertwined with that of their master, resolved to share his fate whatever it might be, so Thomas, come life, come death, was resolved not to forsake his Lord, seeing he was bound to him by a deep and enthusiastic love, end quote. Thomas had no illusions. He saw the jaws of death, and he was willing to die. He may have been pessimistic, but he was a man of courage and love. He did not want to be separated from Christ. You could put it this way. Death, yes. Disloyalty, never. At this point in his time with Jesus, he was willing to die for him, but he wouldn't be disloyal. Now turn over to chapter 14 in John's Gospel, and we see him once again. And once again, the same attitudes come out. This takes place in the upper room following the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. 
Now watch verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? This is the same heart of love that says, Lord, don't go someplace that we can't go to. Uh, it's the same thing. The thought of separation was an issue with Thomas. He's saying, I don't like what I'm hearing. You're going to go somewhere and we're not going to know where you are or how to get there. His heart is nearly broken as he speaks. And because he's a pessimist, he says, we'll never find this place. It, it's a bleak, negative, bewildered heart. And in verse 6, Jesus says to him, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What Jesus is saying is, don't worry about it, Thomas. I'll take you there. I'm the way. And if you're in me, you don't have to fear. What I'm telling you is true because I'm true. So I'm not going to go someplace and leave you. I will take you there. But you can hear both the pessimism and the love of Thomas, can't you? He's afraid of losing the Lord. He loves him so much. There's a third and final look at Thomas. Turn over to John 20. This is by far the best known incident involving Thomas that we have in Scripture. Jesus was crucified and buried. And all of Thomas's worst fears had become reality. In his mind, he's thinking, what do we do now? He's gone. We have no idea what to do. He felt lost and forsaken. He was, he's like a wounded animal. When a, an animal is wounded seriously, what do they often do? They go off into the woods or a field by themselves to die. Well, Thomas didn't want to be around anyone else, so he left. When the rest of the disciples gathered together, he wasn't there. He's depressed because he loved Jesus so deeply. And now his pessimism is vindicated, you might say. And he's really in the pits. But Jesus has been resurrected and now he appears to all of the other disciples who were gathered together, locked in a room, hiding from the officials. Verse 24 says, but, did, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Of course not. He's out licking his wounds. So apparently at some point shortly thereafter, he does show up. And verse 25 says, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. They're saying, we've seen the Lord Thomas and you weren't there. He's alive. Thomas is really depressed. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who's really, truly depressed? It seems like no matter what you tell them, they won't believe it. And Thomas is no different. Thomas is no different. He's in no mood to listen to what he believes to be a fanciful tale that does nothing but pour salt into his already wounded heart. So the rest of verse 25 says, But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now we already know that he's a pessimist. Uh, and so he says, unless I see visual evidence that he's really alive and I'm able to touch and feel him, I, don't, I won't believe a thing you say. 
Now, before you pounce on him for being such a party pooper and a, a dicky downer, remember that none of the disciples believed until they saw Jesus. Remember that. I mean, after all, it's not easy to believe that someone rose from the dead. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? They're walking along and Jesus shows up and join him, joins them and they're moaning and groaning about him being dead. And they didn't believe until he revealed himself to them. No one believed until he saw them, uh, until they saw him. So don't make Thomas the doubter. He's a loving pessimist who admits that the only way he'll be convinced is to actually see and touch and feel Jesus. Now you and I, if we were doing things, and praise God we're not, uh, we might think that Jesus should have appeared right then to Thomas. But God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work on our time schedules. And so verse 26 says this, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came and the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. For whatever sovereign reason he had, Jesus let Thomas continue to sulk in his pessimism for eight more days. And then he shows up in a spectacular way. The doors are shut and locked. Jesus just rearranged the molecules in his glorified body and walked through the wall or the door. You know, I'm looking forward to when I'm in heaven because Philippians 3.21 says Jesus is going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. I believe our glorified bodies are going to do, be just like his glorified body. And we will be able to do the same things that his glorified body could do. We'll go wherever we desire and the doors and walls won't be an obstacle. Anyway, getting back to the point, Jesus enters the room and he says, peace be with you. Now that seems like a fitting greeting to say, doesn't it? I mean, just think of the chaos that must have occurred. It would have been shocking that anyone could get in, but Jesus just walks into their midst. Uh, he, he had to give a greeting of peace to calm their shocked emotions. But then Jesus zeroes in on Thomas. He knows how much Thomas loves him and that he has been utterly depressed and shattered for the past eight days. And so he says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Did Thomas do that? No. You see anything in the text that says he did that? No. It says, it just says immediately without doing anything, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. It's one of the greatest confessions recorded in scripture. It's a monumental statement. He refers to Jesus as my Lord. He's saying, you are my master, my sovereign ruler, my owner. He's placing himself under the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And then he called Jesus, my God. That term acknowledges that Jesus was fully divine. He wasn't just a, a model man. He was God in flesh. Yes, Thomas was a 
melancholy, pessimistic personality. But he loved Jesus immensely. And when he saw the risen Lord, he gave the greatest testimony ever given. We aren't told whether he fell at Jesus' feet or grabbed him in a big hug or what. What we know is that he immediately recognized that Jesus' physical living presence after having been crucified was not only the fulfillment of everything in Scripture that it said about the Messiah, but also that he could be no one else other than God in flesh. So if you encounter anyone who claims that the Bible never says Jesus was God, Thomas clearly said he was. And if they say, well, that was just Thomas's opinion, that doesn't mean he was right. Well, then they have a problem with the next verse too. Because when Jesus replied to Thomas, he didn't say, oh, Thomas, don't say that. That's not right. Because you see, if Jesus wasn't actually God and he didn't correct Thomas who just expressed worship to, of him as such, then Jesus would not be the honorable, just, upright man that unbelievers are usually willing to acknowledge about him. Instead, he would be a hypocrite and a liar for allowing Thomas to believe a lie. But Jesus didn't correct Thomas because what Thomas said was absolutely true. Jesus was and is fully divine. Now let's look at, Thomas, at Jesus' reply to Thomas. Many Bible versions translate what Jesus said as a question. My New American Standard says, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? But if you look at the Greek language here, you find that it can be read either as a question or as a statement of fact. Uh, some translations like the New American Standard and the English Standard Version and the Legacy Standard Bible choose the question. Others like the NIV, the New King James Version, and the Christian Standard Bible all choose the statement. Uh, I personally think the statement is the better way to translate it. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Uh, but if it's a question, the New American Standard has a rather, I think, a rather stiff way of wording it. The English Standard Version words it, have you believed because you have seen me, uh, which is much smoother, easier to understand. But I believe it's a simple statement of fact. Jesus acknowledges that once Thomas saw him with his own two eyes, he was able to believe that Jesus had risen. And then Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Do you know who that is? That's all of us, all the believers since that time. You and me and millions of other believers, we've never personally seen Jesus physically. We didn't see his miracles physically, but we believe. Tradition tells us that Thomas went all the way to India to proclaim the gospel. In fact, the Martama Church, a group of churches from India, traces its founding all the way back to Thomas, uh, who planted churches there in the first century. Martama is the Aramaic term for St. Thomas. Uh, today there are Martama churches not only in India, but also North America, Europe, the Middle East, Malaysia, Singapore, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, one of their churches is in Tampa, and there are eight others in the southern USA. The denomination came to the United States uh, due to the migration of so many Indians here for work. 
their religious practices are far more formal and ritualistic than ours. They even state uh, that they are a cross between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Protestant churches. So they're much like the Episcopal Church in their religious practices. Sadly, they are a part of the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches, both of which are liberal groups, and now they're starting to promote the ordination of women and the acceptance of gay and transgender people in their churches. Thomas the Apostle would be appalled uh, and righteously angry is what become of what he began. Tradition says that Thomas was martyred after he led the local provincial queen along with the prince and one of the princesses and one of the princess's friends to faith in Jesus Christ. And the king was so infuriated that he ordered his soldiers to take him to a near, nearby hill where they rammed spears into Thomas and killed him. Uh, if you think about it, that's sort of a fitting way for him to die, being that Jesus told him to reach forth his hand and put his hand into the wound from the spear in his side. Uh, so that's the story of Thomas. And that brings us to the end of Thomas. Before we move on, let me pause. Are there any questions or comments regarding Thomas? Did you learn anything regarding Thomas? He's not as much of a doubter as you thought, is he? Well, let's look at Matthew. We've already examined Matthew. Uh, we did that when we studied his call to follow Jesus back in chapter 9. Matthew is mentioned in every list, always in the same group. But Scripture never records a single word from Matthew in any of the Gospels. And only one thing is ever told uh, to us about him. It's found in Matthew 9.9 and here in 10.3. And what is it? That he was a tax collector. That is the extent of everything we know about Matthew. The only thing the scripture ever records that was ever said to Matthew is recorded in Matthew 9, 9. Jesus went from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, I'm certain that in the three years that Matthew walked with Christ, Jesus said many other things to Matthew. And, but that is the only statement found in scripture that was directed to him. And so when Matthew writes the list of the disciples here in verse 3, chapter 10, he says, and Matthew the tax collector. May I add that no other disciple in the list is ever associated with his job. Uh, in none of the four lists of the disciples mentioned in scripture does it say Peter the fisherman or John the fisherman. Uh, so why does it say Matthew the tax collector. I mean, that's not something that you would be proud of, particularly at that time in Israel, is it? No. A tax collector was the most hated, despised, despicable human being in the entire society. I think that's because I think it's because Matthew was so overwhelmed by Jesus' willingness to accept him and forgive him that he is showing us his genuine humility and sense of sinful unworthiness. If you recall back in chapter 9, just before Jesus called Matthew, he saw a paralytic lying on a bed and told him, take courage, your, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And when the scribes were thinking that Jesus was blasphemous to say that he 
uh, could forgive sins, Jesus then told him, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he healed the man of his paralysis. And then immediately after that incident, Matthew slips himself into the story to show that indeed Jesus can forgive sins because Matthew sees himself as the vilest sinner. And I think that may be the reason why Matthew never records anything he ever said. Never asks a question. He never makes a comment. He never appears in any incident. He just is absolutely faceless and voiceless throughout the entire narrative of the Gospels. And it may be that his humility was born out of his overwhelming sense of sinfulness, that he was so overwrought by the sin of his life that once forgiven, grace was so superabundant in his case that he felt himself unworthy to even speak a word. And so even though he is one of the more well-known apostles uh, because he wrote this gospel, he is one of the silent disciples. That is until the Spirit of God tells him to pick up his pen. And then he's given the privilege of writing the opening of the New Testament, 28 chapters on the majesty of the King of Kings himself. Remember, before his salvation, Matthew was a traitor, an extortioner, a thief. He was greedy. He was a social outcast, and he knew it. As a Jew, he had been used by the Roman government to collect taxes from his fellow countrymen to give to Rome. So he worked for the oppressor, and thus he was considered to be a first-class traitor. You see, when you bought the right to collect taxes, you paid the government. You bought into the system, and then the government would stipulate a certain amount of tax that had to be collected and that was to be given to Rome. And, but then you were free to collect, collect anything above that, more that you could, from the people. And that you kept for yourself. And so there were bribes and uh, extortionist uh, things that were taken, abuses beyond what you could even dream. The Jews hated tax collectors so much that the Talmud, the collection of rabbinical teachings, says, quote, it is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector, end quote. I sometimes think that evangelical Christians today have adopted the same mentality towards the IRS. It's not. It's not. The Bible says pay your taxes, Romans 13, 6 and 7. No Christian can ever justify not paying their taxes based on some kind of spurious argument that they claim is from the Bible. It just isn't true. But no tax collector was ever permitted to testify in a court of law because everyone knew they were liars and took bribes. No tax collector could ever enter a synagogue or a temple to worship God because they were cut off from God. That's why in Luke 18, when you have the tax collector praying at the temple, it says he was standing some distance away. Uh, he couldn't even go in the place. They were considered the worst sinners in the society because they had turned their backs on their people and bought into an evil, oppressive system, a pagan system made up by uncircumcised Gentiles who worship false gods and the emperor. As I told you when we studied chapter 9, there's two kinds of tax collectors. There were the Gabai, who were the general tax collectors. They collected all the standardized taxes, like property taxes, income taxes, and poll taxes. Apparently, there wasn't that much graft at that level. But then there were the tax collectors 
known as the Mokesh. They collected duty taxes. And they collected duty taxes on everything. They set up their toll and tax booths where major roads crossed and they collected all import on all imports and exports, all items bought and sold. They set tolls on roads, tolls on bridges, tolls on harbors. They set tolls on the number of axles on your freight wagons, how many oxen were pulling those wagons, on packages, letters, everything. And as I told you before, even among the Mokesh, there were two kinds of Mokesh. There was the one called a great Mokesh who hired someone else to do the tax collecting and he just sort of faded into the background because he didn't really want to be associated with the actual activity himself because that way he could retain a little more dignity within the society. But then there was the little Mokesh. He was too cheap to hire someone else to collect the taxes because he was so greedy, he did it himself, even though there was far greater social stigma and ostracizing that he endured. That was Matthew. He was the little Mokesh of Capernaum. Matthew 9.9, he was sitting in the tax collector's booth. He was a greedy extortioner and traitor to his people, but apparently his soul was greatly bothered by his sin. I think one very interesting point is that in the Gospel of Matthew, there are more quotes from the Old Testament than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Do you know that? Say that again. There are more quotes from the Old Testament in Matthew than the other three Gospels combined. So Matthew knew the Old Testament. In fact, he quotes out of all three sections of the Old Testament as the Jews divided them. The law, the prophets, and the hagiographa. That's the holy writings. In their Talmudic order, those were the books of Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Today, we evangelicals refer to them as historical and wisdom books. Uh, and we classify Daniel among the prophets. But in Judaism, they're still known as the hagiographa. Uh, what's my point? It is that Matthew clearly knew the law of God in the Old Testament. And yet prior to his calling by Jesus, there's no indication of his being interested in spiritual things at all. It's unlikely that while he was a tax collector, he was studying the scriptures. That's very unlikely. So he must have studied them in his youth because he had a very thorough understanding of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes along and says to him, follow me, he immediately arose and followed him. Now consider what that meant. First, he just walked away from his career. I mean, it wasn't like Peter, Andrew, James, and John who were fishermen. If they didn't like what went on with Jesus, they could always go back to fishing, right? Uh, in fact, in John 21, they did exactly that. They all went back fishing. The Lord showed them they couldn't catch anything without him. Uh, but when... Matthew walked away from that tax booth. Believe me, the Roman government would have someone else there the next day. So Matthew was cutting off his career for good. Second, he was identifying with someone who was equally rejected by the establishment. 
The scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus as much or more than they hated Matthew for being a tax collector. So he was really jumping from the frying pan into the fire. He paid a high price. You say, well, why did he do that? There's only one reason. The thread that keeps weaving through this little section of chapter 9 is the forgiveness of sin. In verse 10, after Jesus called him, Matthew put on a feast for all of his fellow tax collectors and sinners, all of those who were rejected by the rest of the Jewish society, and Jesus is the guest of honor at that feast. And you will remember that when we studied that, the Pharisee says, well, why is Jesus hanging around with tax collectors and sinners? And in verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What, he's, what was he calling sinners to? Repentance. We're told that in Luke's parallel account of this incident. So the point of the banquet then was for Jesus to call sinners to repentance. The whole thread here is the confession of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. And so Matthew just throws his own story in there because it's an issue with him. Nobody in the world knew his sin better than Matthew knew. He knew he was a sinner. He knew his graft, his abuse, his extortion, his greed. He knew he had betrayed his people. He knew that he could be bought for money. He knew that. And he despised it and he wanted out. He was from the same town as Jesus and so he may have heard him preach at some point in the past. And so when Jesus came by and said, follow me, he knew that included, that, that included the forgiveness of sin. And so he gave up everything to follow Jesus. He was willing to say goodbye to his career and everything else because he wanted forgiveness. What kind of people does God use? Are they stained glass saints? Are they those who clean up their lives first before they come to him so that they're worthy of his forgiveness? No. He uses vile, wretched, rotten sinners, the most despicable people in society who are willing to be forgiven. You see, God is in the transformation and restoration business. He takes the unqualified and transforms them. That's his business. And I believe Matthew risked a lot more than the fisherman did because he could never go back. And he was a vile sinner. What if Jesus had looked at him and said, no, your sin is so wretched you can't be forgiven. There he would be stuck with the same sin and no job to go back to. But he immediately forsook all to follow Christ. And the genuineness of his repentance is found in the fact that you see his humility. He has nothing to say about himself. He has nothing to say about his talent, what he had to offer the Lord. The only thing he wants to say is Jesus forgives sin. And one of the ones he forgave was a man named Matthew who was truly a horrible sinner, whose only friends were a lot of other sinners and tax collectors. And so we learn in that about his humility. There's another thing we learn about Matthew. He had a heart for the lost. I mean, what was the first thing he did after coming to Jesus? <clears throat> Throw a banquet for all the other 
tax collectors and sinners, the, all, all the other rejected, despised, down-and-out people. And they were from all the whole region, you know. There are some Christians who just sort of gravitate to down-and-outers, aren't there? That must have been Matthew. I mean, if there was ever a discussion among the disciples about whether or not they ought to get involved with such and such a riffraff, I'm sure Matthew would have led the people toward the led the parade towards the riffraff. I'm glad that when the Lord puts together a team of men, he takes some from out of the deepest pit. Otherwise, some of us might never be willing to go into that pit, not knowing that something can really happen there. What a man Matthew was. He was a greedy thief, an extortionist, an outcast, the most despised and hated of men, but he was convinced of his sin, and when given an opportunity to believe, he immediately trusted Christ and followed him. He became a man of quiet humility who loved the outcast, who gave no place to the religious establishment, a man of great faith, a man of total and utter surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, a man who knew the Old Testament, and a man that God used to write the first gospel. One writer referred to it as, quote, the glorious unconventionality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He chooses the most unlikely people, end quote. Tradition says that Matthew went to Ethiopia as a missionary. And while there, King Herticus lusted after his own niece, and Matthew rebuked him for such lecherous behavior. And the king ordered Matthew to be killed, so he was taken out and impaled to the ground with spears and then beheaded. Not much else is known because Matthew was in a very remote place in Africa where few historians or other Christians would even go. And that brings us to the end of the second group of the disciples. And that brings us then, of course, to the third group. But our time is very, very short. But so far we've seen the first two groups, and now this third group. The first three men in this group are the least, three least known men of the whole 12. Uh, most of what we know about them is inferred from their names or descriptive identities or is gathered from church tradition. Uh, verse 3, the end of verse 3, and then verse 4. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So we, uh, when I'm looking at the time, and I'm realizing that uh, we're not going to go into these, you know, except for one question, short question posed by, to Jesus by Thaddeus. The Bible tells us absolutely nothing about these guys' individual characters, personalities, abilities, accomplishments even though they were there for three years under training by Jesus. Um, and so the tendency is to sort of figure them as second-class apostles, just sort of hangers-on, when the truth is they made the same commitment as Peter and everybody else, and they crossed the line in utter, total obedience to Christ. So what kind of people does the Lord use in his service? What kind of people did he go out and pick? Ordinary guys with some of the same crummy attitudes, sins, and all as we have. That's who he picked. 
and he transformed them all except for Judas. He, made, he doesn't uh, pick saints, he makes saints. Yes. Like the Marine Corps. <laughs> 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 yeah. Any other any other questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. Was James the last Matthew's brother? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about that next week. I wouldn't. I would not gloss over that. Anything else? Yes. General question. It seems as though most of these men did not accomplish much for the gospel after writing of the gospels themselves. They didn't write the gospels. Oh, you mean they didn't? They didn't do. We don't know of what they did in their ministry. That's right. I know you're bringing up things from tradition. Yeah, that's all we have. That's all we have. Uh, We don't know. But we know that they all served because they all went out and with the exception of John, they all suffered a martyr's death. So they, they were faithful to him to death. So, all right. Well, let's close. Frank, you've been sitting back there so quietly and nice. Why don't you close us with prayer?